Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. back there? Yes? So, some of you have spent a lot of time in this room lately. Either you were in the intensive weekend or so ago, or a retreat with Enkyo Roshi this past weekend. And um, we don't like to talk too much about membership here. Um, And according to the new issue of Ascent magazine, we practice anarchy yoga here. (laughs) So you can buy that and read all about what you practice. (laughs) Um, But... Um, it's also really important to make a commitment to do this practice and to have confidence in the practice. And uh, this is called shraddha, or faith. And faith isn't like faith in any kind of belief system or faith in any kind of philosophy that we're um, spouting here. Uh, But really the faith that comes when you really commit wholeheartedly to doing this practice. And uh, we're open only for a few more weeks until uh, the holidays, and we close for a couple months. And um, so I encourage you to try and really stick to this practice, uh, coming here when you can and practicing at home every day. To put in the time, because uh, the practice bears fruit. And uh, I can see in some of you, when I hear about what's happening in your practice and in your lives, that um, (coughs) it's working. And that's shraddha, that's faith. Kind of a disappointing faith in some ways, because like, we all want a good story. So I was trying to give the talk uh, tonight a title so uh, there were a couple titles that came to mind uh, the first is um, Common Unconscious Chronic Everyday Utilitarian Multiple Personality Disorder <laughs> <laughs> and the second title was Spontaneity I'm not sure which one to go with but at the end of the session you can decide and um I'd like to talk a little bit about a theme that we spend every week talking about, which is the self. What it is, what it might be, how it operates, how it's related to what we're exploring when we're sitting like this, in community and solo with our own karma. Um, So I thought I'd start using a passage that uh, Roshi was using on the weekend. Um, For those of you that weren't here, we were studying the Heart Sutra, and on Sunday morning she was drawing from a passage uh, that Hakuin, a 16th century Japanese maverick, um, 
used when he uh, wrote a commentary on the Heart Sutra. Um, and uh, if you have a sense of humor, then you should read Hakuin. If you don't, stay away. Um, here's this passage from the end of the Heart Sutra. If you see a single thing around to depend on, that's not unhindered. It's tied in chains. If you see a single thing around you to depend on, that's not unhindered. It's tied in chains. Compassion and wisdom are essentially the same. Like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. So this is Hakuin's definition of enlightenment. This is a very moving metaphor, I think. For me personally, I don't know if this resonates with you. This idea that the self, in its finest, healthiest, elegant operation, um, is both wisdom and compassion. The self is not practicing wisdom, cultivating wisdom, cultivating compassion. It is the non-duality of wisdom and compassion. That's what the self is. What's that life in activation, in operation? It's like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. Like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. Do you feel that way? And what I want to talk about tonight is when we feel that way and when we don't. And how this is the motivation for practice. And, you know, um, some of you who've practiced here, whether you were here this past weekend or have practiced in our workshops, you know that one of the things we often have done is to move back and forth between solitary sitting practice, even with other people. The practice can sometimes feel internal, you and your mind. And some people really excel in the sitting. You know, you sit and there's stillness and there's calmness. And then the teacher asks you to get a partner and tell them what's happening in your practice. Or maybe they give you a question to work on. And suddenly you have to shift. You have to shift from this internal, contemplative, reflective, <coughs> still place to using language as humans do to express yourself. And sometimes this shift can feel awkward. It does for me anyways. Sometimes it's jarring, you know. Especially on retreat where you go from uh, so many hours of stillness to having to talk to the teacher about what's happening for you. And how can you express to the teacher what's happening for you? Most of us, there's a lot happening. <laughs> How do you know what to say? You don't want to spill out everything, throw up on the teacher. <laughs> okay, you really want to know what's happening? <laughs> Is it bright enough? Oh, some of you are sleeping back there. And that's what I love about this Hakuin passage, is um, that the self, when it's operating freely, is empty of substantiality. It's empty of a fixed location. And so it can shift from moment to moment because how am I, how I am when I'm sitting here in front of the room isn't how I'm going to be with my son, isn't how you should be with your kids. And how you are with your kids rolling around under the couch or whatever shouldn't be how you are at work unless you work with kids in your <laughs> Winnicott or something. Mm -hmm. So to be able to shift from moment to moment, and this is what Hakuin, I think, so eloquently um, describes when he says, like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. So I thought that um, we could just talk a little bit about what do we mean by self uh, from a Western psychological perspective. Because there are really four selves. 
But don't tell anybody this, they'll freak out. Um, and if you're a psychiatrist, you know that multiple personality disorder was taken out of the dictionary because everybody has it, which is healthy. Actually, the people who are unhealthy don't have the multiple personality disorder. They're trying to be the same person all the time. Have you ever had in your life a persona that was so strong where you tried to be the same person all the time in different situations? Has anybody ever tried doing that? Yes? No? Really? I don't believe you haven't. Get an idea of who you are, then you try and be that person, and how much suffering there is in that. So, um, the first form of self that I think we can all relate to is the self that's either multiple or discontinuous or both. So this is the self that is uh, intersubjective, co-created in different situations, multiple personality order, where you're different people with different people. It's really, really healthy. Different people with different people. And um, an example of this that I, I, I heard once that really uh, struck me is uh, Stephen Mitchell before he passed away. Uh, he was here with his partner um, giving a talk and she talked about um, how for his birthday um, does, do you know who Stephen Mitchell is? Yes? No? One of the great uh, uh, clinical theorists of uh, this past generation. Wonderful, sensitive uh, um, theorist. And um, she told this story about how for his birthday, they live in Manhattan, she bought him a self-portrait. So she hired an artist to paint his picture. And so he sat there for an afternoon with a very famous artist who painted his picture. And uh, then a few weeks later, he was, uh, he was allowed to bring it home, the paint had dried. He brought it home, showed her, and he said, isn't it awful? You know? She said, yeah, it doesn't look like you at all. She says, yeah, I can't figure it out. Like, something looks like me, but it doesn't really look like me. And it sat in their kitchen for days and days. They couldn't figure out what to do with it. Because they couldn't put it up because it sort of looked like him, didn't really look like him. But yet it was like a present, so he felt bad. He wanted to put it up, so she was happy. And then uh, one day they were sitting eating breakfast, looking at the painting. And uh, she turned to him and said, I realize what it is. This is your expression when you're hanging out with someone you don't like. <laughs> And I remember this, uh, personally, I remember this experience. For those of you that are therapists, you know this, that you're with different people. Maybe you see four or five, or some of you might see 20 people in one day. And um, at the end of the day, if you're really present with each person, there's a feeling that you've been a completely different person every hour. Every person you encounter, when you're really with them, you're totally different, you know? Unless you are trying to be a doctor or something. And then you're fixed. You can't allow that to happen. Um, the next kind of self is the self that is, um, has, has integrity and is continuous. So that's like when you have the expression, oh, I feel like myself again. Or I come back to myself again. Um, the feeling that even though there seems to be different kinds of people you can be, it feels like you come back to some kind of self again. Have you all had this experience? Right. You know, it's like you come back to this certain configuration that, oh, that's Jack. That's me. You know? The third kind of self is the self that's unself-conscious. Right? All of you have had this experience. You're making art, you're making love, you're swimming, you're writing, 
hopefully you're practicing meditation. And uh, for a moment, the whole story that's always dominating awareness stops, and there's just what's happening. No object, no subject. So this is a a momentary non-duality. You're swimming in a river, and you forget about yourself. And actually, how freeing those moments are. When, when you're so deeply involved in something, I, I think for myself this happened to me as a young person mostly with music, going to see concerts or listening to music and just forgetting about myself. Have you all had this experience? I hope. Yeah. We all know this experience. Fourth kind of self is um, not self. And this is a little bit trickier. And I think it's important to distinguish not-self from these other kinds of self. So in unself-consciousness, so this happens in concentration practices. You're sitting in meditation practice, sitting, coming back to the breath, over and over and over, and then for a moment, there's no technique. You forget about yourself. It's just quietness, just the sound of the room, light. So there's something happening, but it's not happening to anybody. Unself-conscious. You're not talking to yourself about it. You all know this if you go to theater or dance or a concert or something, where you you can listen to music and you can be talking to yourself about the music. Oh, I like this song. This is really good. I like what the bass player is doing, you know. And then there's moments in the performance where you just, you're in it. And there's no commentary happening. You're not talking to yourself about what's happening. There's just what's happening. So this is the unself-consciousness. And in that moment, like in concentration during meditation, there's a suppression of anxiety and conflict. Okay, Because of the quality of awareness... The, the, the negative karmic patterns that create conflict and anxiety, they're suppressed. And it's interesting to understand this because when you're not objectifying what you're noticing, then anxiety tends to um, be suppressed. In the most positive way of using that word, it's, it's quieted down because of the energy of the concentration. Does this make sense? Please tell me if it doesn't make sense. I don't understand the difference between a third. That's what we're trying to articulate. Yeah. Good segue. So in the fourth version, not self is sustained, and the anxiety is extinguished. Nirvana, extinguished. Okay. So there's an unbinding of the self object. Okay. So the difference between the third and the fourth is that unself-consciousness is an experience you have. And not-self is not an experience you have. It's a, it's a mode of being. You see? Doing with no doer. Are we talking about the Western self now? You're talking about self in Western terms now. It doesn't matter, but it's just the self, however you experience the self. So the first three are very Western, kind, Western terminology, you know. But the fourth one is um, a break from that in some way. That the self exists, but we see through its substantiality. And when we can do that in a sustained way, it can't keep operating the way it's been operating. And then, we're like a bead rolling on a tray. Yes? If you're experiencing, or you are, Uh the fourth self, doesn't that... Well, you can't be the fourth self. That's right. So what I was about to say was, Uh doesn't that extinguish the first three? The existence of the fourth self extinguishes the first three. You could say that. Because you yeah. can't be the fourth self. You could say that. 
Yeah. So it doesn't really fit into the same category as the first three. Um, well, maybe another way to say it is that the, the first three can keep operating, but they're just operating in a way where they're in the background, not in the foreground, so that you see their operation, but it's not the dominant mode of perception. But don't listen intellectually. Okay. You're trying to make a new... I can hear in my answer, I'm trying to help set it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the story of the person who asked the Buddha? Who was it? Vajagota? Vajagota asked the Buddha this question. Does anybody know this story? Okay, I'll tell the story. Such a good one. Um... There's a wandering uh, student, Vajigota, and he goes to the Buddha because he's frustrated. He wants to know, is there a self or is there no self? Would you just answer the question? <laughs> you know. So he comes to the Buddha and says, is there a self or is there no self? Just answer the question. And the Buddha stays silent. Vajigota's frustrated. And so um, Ananda, who is the Buddha's assistant, who's always trying to just like make everything better. <laughs> Ananda goes after Vajagota to try and like explain to Vajagota that it's not because the Buddha doesn't know. It's just like <laughs> you need to understand why he's not answering. But then Vajagota but then Ananda realizes he doesn't really understand. <laughs> so Ananda goes back to the Buddha and says, I want to help Vajagota understand, but I don't understand. How come when Vajagota asks you if there is a self or if there's no self, you decline to answer? And Buddha says, very simple. Um, if I say that there is a self, it would go against my teaching. And if I say that there is no self, then Vajragota would think that there is no self. But clearly there is. Do you understand? You see, the Buddha is not teaching no self, that you don't have a self. He's teaching not self. It's not the same thing. Not-self means that there is the operation of a self, but it has no inherent substantiality. It, it, there's no, it has no thing about it, you see? And when we can see that about ourselves, about the viewpoint that we spend so much time talking about and working with, then there's spontaneity. Because we're not fixed in the viewpoint of I, me, and mine. We spend so much time representing ourselves to ourselves. And so the self actually is a representation, it's a representation back to ourselves. There's a great story like this of three Jewish grandmothers in Miami Beach sitting around talking about the love of their sons. And as Jewish grandmothers do, they weren't just talking about the love of their sons, they were comparing the love of their sons. And the first uh, grandmother says, you know, my son, he loves me so much. Do you know that Jaguar in my driveway? I said, oh yes, we've noticed that he bought me that Jaguar. That's how much he loves me. Second grandma says, that's nothing. You know, do you know that Chagall hanging over my fireplace? My son bought that for me at an auction. He paid top price for that. Gave it to me on my anniversary. I say, oh wow, son must love you. The third woman said, that's nothing. My son, he goes and sees a psychoanalyst in Manhattan, Four days a week, $150 an hour, and all they do is talk about me. <laughs> and you know this experience, right? Because this is what you do with yourself all day long. All day long, you talk about what's happening, putting it into a context so that it can be happening to me, to you. And, and we think that that gives us some kind of meaning, but it actually shuts down 
spontaneity. Is this making sense? A little bit. Let me read to you. When self-centeredness comes to an end, we discover not that our self has ceased to exist, but that the self is not what we thought. The self is no longer an inner sanctum of private experience or a narrow set of personal needs or expectations. Our world is our self, rather than our self being our world, rather than constantly trying to impose our self onto our lives, we realize that all of life is who and what we are. What Buddhists call compassion is simply whatever action or response flows from that awareness. The Buddhists call compassion is simply the response that flows from the awareness that the self is everything. Everything. Rivers and fish and clouds and friends and neighbors, even neighbors. So one of the ways that we're trying to push through this boundary of moments of unself-consciousness to not-self, one of the ways we do this in the meditation practice is to try and shift the locus of attention so we're not focused on the representation of what's happening in the context of me. Instead, we're shifting the awareness almost like it's doing a 180 back towards the nature of awareness. You see? So it's like, when we're following the breath, we're also noticing who is doing the breathing. But you can't notice that if you keep sculpting your breath. You have to let the breath just be relaxed. And then you see that there's breathing, but there's no central intelligence breathing. Or there is central intelligence. But it's like, the intelligence of everything. It's natural world breathing. Okay? Or the same thing with sensations. Sensations are arising and passing away. You are not creating them and they're not referring back to you. They're just moving through awareness. Sounds are coming and going. Thoughts are coming and going. You can plug that in to the narrative of I, me, and mine Or you can just watch thoughts come and go without a thinker. Do you see the difference? Not focusing on the object all the time, the particular thought or the content, but focusing on the nature of the awareness. Who is watching? Who's seeing? Who's listening? Who's hearing these words? And if there's a lot of grasping and conceit, then they're happening to me. I need them to do something with. And that's why often on retreat, say, don't bring your journal. One more passage from Adam Phillips' new wonderful book, Going Sane. Sanity, as the project of keeping ourselves recognizably human, has to limit the range of human experience. To keep faith with recognition, we have to stay recognizable. Sanity, in other words, becomes a pressing preoccupation as soon as we recognize the importance of recognition. We are, we are tyrannized by our blind spots and by whatever it is about ourselves we find unacceptable. Okay? I love this passage on sanity. It is a wonderful book. I highly recommend, if you don't know, Adam Phillips, psychoanalyst, writer, 
literary critic. What he's saying here is that in order to have sanity, you have to determine what's not acceptable. And you have to be able to recognize what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And he's playing with the words here so that we recognize in ourselves that there are certain things we deem unacceptable. And so we objectify those things, especially certain parts of ourselves. So it's not just other people or other countries, but also parts of ourselves that are unacceptable. And when those parts are not included in the process we call the self, then the self is split and fragmented. And sometimes we can split something off so well, this is, you know, really what schizophrenia is, is that you have split something off so well that it's actually developed its own ego. So you split it off where it's so unacceptable that it actually now is its own personality, operating, talking to you, and so on. And sometimes that ego is bigger than your ego. But at a smaller level, we all know this about what we deem unacceptable. And then there can't be spontaneity because we're haunted, we're terrorized by this feeling that we're not whole. And it has everything to do with perception. Everything to do with perception. And you can see this culturally also. I just learned today in Bill McKibben's wonderful article in the new Harper's Magazine that uh, this year marks in the United States the year where there are as many farmers as prisoners. And next year it crosses. Fewer farmers, more prisoners. So there are certain people in our society that are just unacceptable. Lock them up, then we can be free. But our freedom then becomes dependent on them being locked up. So likewise, internally, externally, same thing happens when we lock ourselves up. And then you have Hakuin saying, but freedom is just being a bead on a tray. Uninhibited. Uninhibited. So, let's value the multiple personality disorder. Or as Bernie Glassman says, find the order of disorder. Any questions or thoughts or comments? I hope this isn't too confusing. Or confusing, just, just confusing enough. <laughs> materializing for you. So in Western psychology when people talk about self-esteem and being able to speak for yourself, mm-hmm. how does that fit into this framework where it looks like what you describe is about the not-self? Yeah. So almost like and identity is disappearing into the birth of trees and the things around you. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas in psychology that we hear all the time is about identifying that entity. So how do you reconcile the, the two camps as were the day-to-day living? Well, first of all, you know, self-esteem projects don't work. Replacing your negative thoughts with positive thoughts, they don't work. A lot of us have been to self-esteem workshops, you know, and uh, look at you now. 
And, and a lot of people say, well, you, you have to have really good self-esteem first before you can do this practice. If you don't have good self-esteem, then you, you don't have a self to let go of. But uh, this is not true. Because when you talk with people who have really low self-esteem, you can hear how they're holding on so tightly to their ideas about themselves. Like people with doormat syndrome, who just let people walk all over them. And at first it looks like they don't have a good sense of self, but then actually you find out that they're actually holding on to their representation of themselves to themselves, which is so negative, in a tighter way sometimes than the inflated person who is just easy to spot the conceit, you know. And so we have to be able to see the way we represent ourselves to ourselves. And that's why we practice. So we can see that process happening. You know? um, but for real transformation to occur, that process has to happen in relationship with other people. Because like I was saying at the beginning of this talk, you know, you can, you can achieve some of these states in meditation and then come out of the meditation practice in interpersonal contact and have a lot of really deep developmental issues um, totally untouched. And that's why these dyadic practices that we do, that's why group exercises that we do are so important because they make you work in language with other people. And they make the they activate the practice. You see. And this is so key. Yeah. I read in someone's bio today that practice is on the back burner now because this person is focused on mothering. And something in me was saddened by that description of practice. That your practice is on the back burner because you're focusing on mothering. You see? And uh, I think this is totally tied into your question. Because the nature of the self is relational. The nature of the self is rela- like Just like the nature of language. When I speak... The sentence isn't finished until you hear it. When you read a sentence, the author's sentence is not is finished by your reading it. You know? But then it's reciprocal. You read it, you express it, you share it, it keeps going. Someone asked Bob Dylan, what would make you happy reflecting on your songwriting? And his response was, Well, if somebody in a couple of centuries was humming a tune of mine in a field and they didn't know who wrote it. But it was good enough that it stuck through the centuries and they were humming it because it was a good tune. You see? So, in everything that we do, in mothering, in diaper changing, in just talking with your partner and your lover, that you can be uninhibited. So you can be What's the third line of the Yoga Sutra? Yeah, so you can be yourself. So you can be yourself. Bead rolling on a tray. Ready, uninhibited. And we can't do it when we keep separating things out. And... uh, I know for me, this past weekend, we were going back and forth between sitting and doing dyadic work, have a partner and you work with them. And uh, sometimes I found it so easy to go from the sitting to being with your partner and really just speaking. Sometimes it was so difficult 
to make the shift. And then I, I felt inhibited, not spontaneous, you see. And it's that feeling that is so important in the practice. Because you see where you're clinging. You see where you're holding on. You see where you're holding on. And so self-esteem, self-esteem is totally tied up in um, protecting our representation of ourselves. Totally tied into that protection which is insanity. Really, it's insanity. It's the opposite of intimacy. But I think that, you know, there is that understanding of self-esteem which you just put lots of holes into. Mm-hmm. But then there is this other quality of people who are really present. Mm-hmm. which can also be called self-esteem, which is not what you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's an ability to act appropriately yeah. and right yeah. and with conviction. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if I would call that self-esteem. Yeah, no. It's a, it's I would call that beads rolling on the tray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Self-esteem has a connotation that we're, we're building something up. You know, like some people actually come to meditation as a self-improvement project. Usually they don't come here, or they don't last very long. But you don't get anything from this. Sorry. This comes after last week telling you you should be getting something. (laughs) You don't get enlightened. You get extinguished. And what's left is everything. Tremendous joy. Like beads rolling on a tray, sudden, ready, uninhibited. Somebody else. Happens when I say those words for you. What happens when you hear those words? Anything, please, not editing. Yeah. From what Angela was, was saying, I like the bees roll. There's there's a, a subtle but very well, there's a difference between the bees rolling on the the tray or a person who can go from one moment to the next with mm-hmm. confidence and. Um, presence, but there's the one who is, um, or all of us are probably both of these things at various times, mm-hmm. you're doing it with a very strong sense of self-esteem for whatever reason, you're mm-hmm. feeling very strong and confident in who mm-hmm. you are, you're, everything around you is working into the story that you are, have built yeah. for yourself, and whatever. The mm-hmm. the right, the weather's right, the person mm-hmm. just said the right thing, mm-hmm. you've got the right paycheck, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what's allowing you to be able to not from one side of the tray to the other. Mm-hmm. But then there's a, the difference, the more, I guess, maybe abiding and calm way of not having those things determine your ability to knock around, right. to just be open to whatever's yeah. coming. Yeah. The first one eventually... It burns out. a bad hair day and that's going to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas... I guess the aim is to, um, yeah. So there's sort of self-esteem. Yeah, and there's clinging. Yes, myself is good enough that I can handle whatever role comes, or just not having to say that, or it not being an issue. Mm -hmm. The problem sometimes, and I think this is (coughs) motivating for practice is that when you have your energy dispersed in a lot of distraction or addiction or self-judgment or something, it totally feeds back into your self-esteem. You know, so you don't think you're very good, and then you go and you overeat, and then you feel bad for overeating, and then it feeds into the self-image again. And then you represent yourself to yourself in that way, and, and it's just this terrible addictive loop. 
you know. And uh, that's why the meditation practice is so helpful, because you just can watch the loop operating. How powerful that is to be able to watch the loop operating. Even in the midst of anxiety, even in the midst of turbulent emotions, to just watch it. Watch the show. And how much freedom there is. Why? Because you're not creating a self out of it. And that's the negative self-esteem loop. And often, what, for most of us, what feeds negative self-esteem is actually choices that we're making that are not so good. You know, that's really, you know, because self-esteem leads to emotional states that we act on in usually not the most skillful ways, which is great, because then we can use that material to torture ourselves <laughs> so that we really feel like a self. And I mean, who doesn't love torturing themselves? It's called Mysore practice. <laughs> yeah. um, I just uh, want to talk about pain. Uh-huh. Pain, really, like physical pain. Yeah. So um, I don't often get physical pain, but a couple of weeks ago I went to the dentist and something happened and oh. I got physical pain. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I, it was really interesting because when I meditated, mm-hmm. At hard it was, as it was at first to kind of get into it because of the pain, but the pain disappeared. Uh-huh. So then it went on with my day, yeah. and as the day went on, the pain would like come back really yeah. bad. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, the pain cleared up, but uh, it was an interesting exercise, and I, yeah. I can't quite grasp why yeah. I was able to, or not I, but the pain receded and mm-hmm. it went away yeah. while I was. So interesting. And then it would come yeah. back, but I didn't like. I wasn't yeah. doing anything unusual in my sure. day. It was just normal yeah. course of. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. just have, I just want to put it out there to see if you had any. Yeah. Well, I just I just think it's fascinating that you can watch something and it goes away. It's an amazing thing with pain. Uh, people with chronic pain find this fascinating. Well, it was hard at first, I have yeah. to say, to, to sit down yeah. and be with it yeah. because it hurt. Sure. But, you, know, you want to get out of it. Yeah. yeah. But I try, I try to you know, yeah. use it as practice. Yeah. And uh, so I don't understand why. Yeah. The rest, it wasn't like I was concentrating on yeah. it throughout the rest of the day, but it yeah. was built up yeah. again. Well, let's just leave your question in the room. And uh, we'll give it a few weeks of practice. And then see if maybe you can answer the question. To start to watch how, when something arises in awareness, if you don't hook into it, by the very fact that it's born, it's going to... Well, before it dies, it's going to age. Then it's going to die. Okay, And the aging process is the part we have the hardest time with. We recognize the pain that's arising, but then when it does, once it arises, that's what we have a hard time with. But if you can just watch that, feel that, be with that, breathe that, instead of going for the nine donuts and the six coffees and the medication and the, just watching that, and then it, it just kind of falls apart. And then in an hour it comes back again, or in five minutes, or in two days. Mm-hmm. Fascinating thing to watch. So there's some insight there if you can pay attention to that some more. One more question, <coughs> comment, concern, pain. Beads on a tray. One more. I'm not getting out of here until there's one more. <laughs> Someone at the back. Susan. Yeah. I guess uh, uh, what's been kind of resonating for me about everything you're talking about is this idea that you spoke about, about resilience. And I guess mm-hmm. I think about self-esteem differently now mm-hmm. because we used to talk about training people and giving workshops and self-esteem mm-hmm. to help them um, be better. Mm-hmm. And I think that what meditation has offered 
um, me, or at least the, the pedagogy of it is so interesting, like in meditation, that we just accept that we aren't perfect, we aren't good all the time, and that the nine donuts or the ten smokes or whatever it is, mm-hmm. is okay because that is part of ourself, and mm-hmm. that self is sometimes best and sometimes not best. Uh-huh. But if we're not terrified that that defines us as bad people or big people or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, destructive, if we don't label all of that Uh to create a self that's so negative, that it's all okay. And I Mm -hmm. think that this whole idea of self-esteem has gotten um, kind of out of hand and people are reframing it now as just the ability to say, I can be okay one day and not okay the next day, and that doesn't define uh-huh. me as either an all good or all bad person. Right. No fixed thing. Right. No. And then hopefully we can go from day to day to hour to hour, then minute to minute, <coughs> then moment to moment, not fixing things. And then, as Hakwin says, Wisdom and compassion become the same thing. The self becomes identical to wisdom, identical to compassion. So easy. Just be a bead on a tray, rolling around. Good luck. Um, Twice in the past two weeks, I've gotten emails or heard from somebody in a conversation that people preface something with, I'm not a mean person, but I'm just going to say this horrible thing to you. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm generally not a terrible person, but I just have to tell you, yeah. you are, uh, you know, <laughs> blaming bitch. I mean, uh-huh. whatever it is. Yeah. Just, and it struck me as so interesting that people always excuse negative or or mm-hmm. really nasty inappropriate behavior when this is who I am but I'm just going to say this really yeah. horrible thing to you but don't take it personally yeah. yeah. no. <laughs> and it kind of reminds me of what you're saying about yeah. the beat on the tray if yeah. you're going to say something horrible then just say it but don't tell me yeah. that you're not saying it yeah. you know but people yeah. want to just own it and say yeah. I'm not usually like this I'm just yeah. going to say this this one yeah. time but don't think of me that mm-hmm. way yeah. so I, I think that that's so much part of our day to day yeah. Uh-huh. to not be defined by our interests and our reactivity. Sure. Yeah. So true. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's finish as we usually do, chanting.